James chapter 4, please. James chapter 4. Going to make a few statements here. Biblical important statements. We'll just make them and then we'll pray and we'll talk about a few things pertaining to James chapter 4 and prayer as we've been asking the Lord to teach us how to pray as a church. So if you're in James 4, just hold on to that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I, I just want to make these statements and then we'll pray. First statement is this. We exist for God. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. He does not exist for us. We exist for God's purposes. He does not exist for our purposes. And thirdly, we exist for God's glory and not our own. Think upon those things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that comes in these truths when we realize that it's about you and not about us, that you and your purposes are infinitely more important than us and ours. And we ask that you would give us this morning a bigger theology, a better understanding of you and your glory, the importance of you over us and our needs and our dramas, that Jesus, you would be exalted, that we'd have a bigger Christology, a bigger understanding of Christ, that you'd be preeminent, that you would be enthroned, that we'd really catch a vision of living for your glory and your purposes and not our own. We exist for you. We're made by you for your pleasure. Help us to live lives that please you and help us to pray in a way that honors you and is pursuant to what you're doing in the world. We ask that you teach us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago was Father's Day, as you know, and Father's Day is always on a Sunday, and pretty much when you're a pastor, you throw those Sunday holidays just kind of out the window, forget about it, Mother's Day, Father's Day, all those, because you just got a lot of stuff going on Sunday, by the time you get home, you're exhausted, we'll do it on Monday. But I was blessed a few weeks ago on Father's Day to go home, and my family had planned this little party for me, this little celebration, my wife and my son Isaiah and my daughter Daisy. So I got there, and they had a few little decorations up in the dining room, and they, you know, I walked in the door, and hooray, daddy, and they started celebrating and clapping and jumping up and down, and went and sat down at the table, and my wife had made uh, some of my favorite dishes. She had made guacamole. We've got a great avocado tree in our backyard. It's awesome. It yields a ton of avocados. If you want any avocados, you can get them at the store, and... Uh, <laughs> And so my wife made this awesome batch of guacamole and she had my favorite chips and it was all set up and she had given me the you are special today plate. Anybody have one of these in your family? It's a little red one that says you are special today and everybody gets it on their birthday or certain holidays. I got it that day. And so I sat down and was eating the guacamole and everyone's all excited and uh, Kate, it kind of prompted that everyone in the family would share what it was about daddy that they loved. So of course I love this. This is fun. And my wife, Kate, started, you know, just kind of giving an example to the kids. And my wife, Kate, is so generous and kind and thinks of the coolest things to say. And she was too generous in her praise of me. And uh, I was humbled and I'm stoked that she still thinks that about me after all these years. And so she said really cool things and I was all excited. And then my son, my eight-year-old, had the most just 
insightful, cool, meaningful things to say about why he loves daddy. I was just kind of blown away of the depth of relationship there that he was able to articulate. And then, my daisy love, my little four-year-old. She's five now, but she was four at the time. You know, four-year-olds have a certain way that they view the world. Four-year-olds have a certain way that they view other people and their relationship to other people. So it's Daisy Love's turn. And Daisy Love said, I love daddy because he buys me toys. I love daddy because he gives me presents. I love daddy because he takes me on bike rides. And she had a whole list of things and every one of them was, I love daddy because of what he does for me. It was completely egocentric. <laughs> completely, utterly, and totally self-centered, which is developmentally normal for a four-year-old. Understand that. It's totally normal for a four-year-old, but it's a completely egocentric perspective of relationship. I love daddy because of what he does for me. It's a four-year-old. When it comes to our understanding of God and our relationship with God, many of us are four-year-olds. We love God because of what he does for me. We approach God hoping and expecting and looking for what he will do for me. We love God because he gives us that, he provides for us this, and he's taking us there. Many of us have a four-year-old's theology or understanding of God. I love God because of what he does for me. That's a four-year-old's theology. It's not what Jesus meant in the Gospels when encouraging us to have a childlike faith. It's not what he meant. And yet this is how many of us relate to God. And so I want us to think again on those simple biblical statements that I said at the beginning. Number one, we exist for God. God does not exist for us. Number two, we exist for God's purposes. He doesn't exist for our purposes. And thirdly, we exist for God's glory and not our own glory. This, my brothers and sisters, is good theology. This is a good and right and biblical understanding of God and who God is and how we should relate to God. This is good theology. Now, it's interesting. You, you can sort of discern a person's theology by looking at their life. We all know this. You can discern someone's theology, their understanding of God, by sort of observing their life beyond what they say. Because what we say is fairly meaningless. What we do proves what we believe. What you do is what you believe. Lip service is one thing, but what you do reveals what you believe. And one of the things that you can observe about somebody's life and, and then begin to sort of see their theology is by watching someone's prayer life. Prayer reveals a lot about what we think of God. And, and what we discover is that many Christians, if we were to look at their prayer lives, are in fact practical atheists. 
Christians by name, but in practice, atheists. They would never claim that, of course. They would say, I'm a Christian. Atheism is not their confessed theology, but it is their practiced theology. Here's what I mean. In the daily ins and outs of life, there's very little thought about God. Very little going to God. Very little seeking God and God's purposes in God's glory, in the minutia of our life. We live our lives as though there were to be some separation between the secular and the holy. Oh yeah, God is there on Sunday and God is there when I get in a whole bunch of trouble and then I go to him, but for the most part, I can handle my life and I can make my own decisions. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. This is practical atheism. It's revealed in the prayer life or the lack of prayer. The exclusion of God from the details of our lives. Our prayer lives reveal this. Then there's the other end of the spectrum. As opposed to practical atheism, many Christians are practical four-year-olds. Practical four-year-oldism, if you will. Instead of being in danger of atheism, they're in danger of idolatry. And the idol would be themselves. They have, like a typical four-year-old, an egocentric theology, a theology that's built around them and their wants and their needs and their purposes, as opposed to a Christological theology, one that's built around Christ and his glory and his purposes and his mission and his wants for the world. So you have at one end practical atheism, at the other end practical four-year-oldism. It's acting as though God exists for us. He's our genie in the bottle. Many of our prayer lives are like this. My prayer life is so often like this. God, here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's what I want more of. Here's what I'd really like to see. Here's what I think you ought to do. I think you ought to do it quicker. I think I need some more of those. <laughs> prayer lives reveal this. Many of us have a four-year-old's theology. And James is dealing with this sort of issue here in chapter 4. We're going to just read three verses. I normally read from the New American Standard. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this morning because I think it communicates this passage well. So we have it on the PowerPoint for you because I realize not many of you carry that translation. James 4, starting in verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? I want you to remember that phrase, please, evil desires. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet, you do not have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Prayerlessness. Verse 3 now, though, says, and even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. I want you to remember that phrase, pleasure. And then the one in verse one, evil desires. 
This passage is having to do with prayer and one of the things that hinders prayer in our lives. We've been asking Jesus to teach us how to pray. One of the things that hinders an effective prayer life is wrong motives. This is a very revealing passage. Verse 1 reveals why we have so many conflicts with others. Verse 2, the first couple sections, reveal why we act out in certain ways. From jealousy, desires. And then verse 2, the last part, reveals practical atheism. You have not because you ask not. You don't have a prayer life. You're not approaching God. You're a practical atheist. And then verse 3 reveals practical four-year-oldism. It reveals a major hindrance to effective prayer life. You go to God, but you go to him as a genie in the bottle. You go to him with your wants, your needs, your issues, your demands, your agenda, your will be done. This is so much how we are. This is so much how I am. I'm with you here. I'm preaching to myself. This is a failure of my own prayer life. And we've got to ask what has gone wrong. Remember I told you to uh, recall that phrase, evil desires, in verse 1? The Greek word there is the same Greek word that's translated pleasures in verse 3. It's the Greek word hedone, hedone, and it means pleasure or enjoyment. But in the New Testament, it's always used in a negative sense. It's only used four times. And it's the idea of indulgence or a lack of control of natural appetites, sensual pleasure, passion, or lust. This Greek word, hedone, is where we get our English word hedonism. Now, the meanings are a little bit different, but hedonism we can relate to. We understand that word. As a noun, it simply means a pursuit of pleasure or sensual self-indulgence. But that word hedonism is more than just a noun. It's an ethical theory. And as an ethical theory, hedonism says that pleasure, in the sense of satisfaction of our own desires, is the highest good and proper aim of life. Hedonism says that pleasure, satisfaction of our own desires, is the highest good and the proper aim of life. Hedonism sees the chief end of man as satisfying one's own wants. And our prayer lives often reveal a hedonistic perspective in our lives. God, I want. God, I need. God wants you do. But the chief end of man's life is not pleasure for the sake of pleasure. What scripture teaches is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the goal of life. To glorify God and to enjoy God forever. The disconnect is that in our failure to enjoy God, for whatever reason, we don't take time to know God or we don't pursue God or we haven't experienced God. In our failure to enjoy God and seek his glory, we find ourselves seeking our own glory and seeking pleasure everywhere else. And the irony is, the more we seek pleasure from the world, the more dissatisfied we become. Can I get even one witness? The more we seek pleasure from the world and the things of the world apart from Christ, the more dissatisfied we become. 
we discover that compared to Christ and the things of Christ, those things don't last. The pleasure of them doesn't last. You work incredibly hard and you get everything that you ever thought you wanted and you feel just as empty at the end of that day. Not only do they not last and do they not satisfy, but they're elusive. Then it seems you, you're always thinking, well, if I just get this one more thing or if I just get this one more angle or if I just handle that one more relationship or just kind of build this thing over here or get my reputation to this point and it's elusive, you're ever reaching, you're grasping after the wind. What the Bible declares is that only Christ satisfies, that only Jesus satisfies. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, said Jesus, for they, and they alone, in the original Greek is the idea, shall be satisfied. And what we find is that those things of the world don't ultimately bring life. And so Jesus says in Matthew 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And so we're reminded this morning, we need to begin to think about this within our prayer lives, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we get those priorities right, when we get that perspective right, the life is right. doesn't mean it's free from drama, but it's wonderfully beautiful when Christ is enthroned when we're pursuing his glory above our own, his purposes above our own. The truth is, only God satisfies and brings life through Jesus Christ. And, and the problem with James's original audience here is often the problem that we have. We either, on the one hand, forget to go to God to meet our needs, which is what they were doing in verse 2. You have not because you ask not. We forget to go to God. Practical atheism, we're not including God. Or we try to use God as a sort of celestial shopping center for worldly goods. And even when you ask, you don't have because you ask with wrong motives, wanting to spend it on your own pleasure. Practical four-year-oldism. That's what's going on in this passage. They either forgot the source or they tried to manipulate the source. Practical atheism or practical four-year-oldism. Rather than seeking God's will, Rather than coming to God and saying, God, what is your will for this relationship? What is your will for this situation, for this job that I have? What is your will in this conflict in my life? Rather than going to God and seeking his will, they are, and we often do, assert our own wills. And yet, did not Jesus teach us to pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But our shopping list prayers betray that we have a theology that says, my will be done, and right now. And we often find ourselves praying, God, bless my plans. Anybody ever prayed that? I pray that all the time. It might be a different phraseology, but that comes out all the time. It could be masked all sorts of different ways. But basically, we've already decided what we're going to do apart from God, practical atheism. 
And then we jump to the other end of the spectrum and we tell God we want him to bless it. Practical four-year-oldism. Here's what I'm going to do, God. Now, I'd like if you do it for me and do it well and do it soon. Bless my plans. You see, God's goal is not to give us what we want according to our every impulse. His goal is that his people, you and I, would learn to love what he loves. That we would learn to value what he values. That we would learn to seek after what is important to God, namely his glory, his purposes for the nations, his mission in the world. And he himself It's often not even that we just have a laundry list before God, but but it's just that we're not seeking God for who he is. We're just not seeking God at all. It's just what we can get from him. We love uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. Poll Christians and many Christians in the room, we won't do it right now, but if I ask how many of you is your favorite verse, many of you, oh, James 29, or Jeremiah 29, 11. I love that. Why do we love it? Because it says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Oh. (laughs) Not to harm you. Oh, yes. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And we say, oh, yes, Lord. Prosper me. Don't harm me. Give me a hope. Give me a future. Good things, Lord. I'll add some stuff to it. It sounds like a great relationship. But then he follows it up with verses 12 and 13. He says, and you will come to me and you will seek after me and you will find me when you seek after me with all your heart. In other words, he says, I know the plan that I have for you. I know my goals for you. Your goal is me. That's what God is communicating in Scripture. The goal for our lives is Christ himself and his glory and his mission. It's not that God doesn't want people to experience pleasure. We need to understand that that God created pleasure. God, God created all things. And he's not against pleasure. He's a God of pleasure. God himself delights in things. He created pleasure. And when we walk through, as I just was up in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, walking through a field, and there's a beautiful stream and wildflowers and buffalo and elk and grizzly bears and all these other things that we saw, those things testify of the goodness of God and the beauty of God and the personality of God. And we're to enjoy those things. God creates certain things that we can enjoy, that we can receive pleasure from. It's not that God isn't into pleasure. God created sex and God created sexual pleasure. It's not against all sorts of pleasure. What he is against is idolatry. When the seeking after the pleasures in this life usurp the seeking after God. When hedonism overtakes Christology when we pursue our own pleasures over the person of Jesus Christ. That's that's what God has a problem with. And that is so often revealed as a problem in us through our prayer lives. And what we see is a lot of unanswered prayers because we ask amiss 
as the old translations say. We ask wrongly or with wrong motives as we read this morning. And our motives are all wrong. We want our will, our way, instead of God and God's will and God's way. But we need to remember what 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says. This is a qualification on prayer. Jesus said in the Gospels, ask and you shall receive. And yet it's qualified by this statement in 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will. Now, a selfish man like myself, a perverted man like myself, will immediately take that and go, well, that took all the fun out of prayer. I mean, really now, if I only pray God's will, I mean, God's will can't be fun. That's a horrible perversion of God. If there's anything fun, God created it. We've perverted a lot of it, but when I go surfing and there's a south swell and it was generated by a storm 1,200 miles away and it's beautiful and the water is good and I'm riding the waves and it's awesome. God made that. And it testifies of a personal God and it's a representation of the personality of God that he has made these wonderful things. But something in us goes, oh, yeah, if you pray according to God's will, he's going to answer. That's not awesome. <laughs> I think we'd be surprised at how awesome God is. I think we'd be surprised at how fun God is. I think we'd be surprised at how much God wants to bless our lives in all sorts of ways. It won't be without trials and tribulations. Those are ordained by God. It shouldn't be without persecution. And he never guarantees the sort of comfort that we love as Americans. That's no guarantee within the gospel. But even those who are suffering immensely for the gospel around the world will testify of the goodness of God, of the kindness of God. The disconnect for us is that we just never ask for God's will. So how can we be praying according to God's will? We need to start in our prayer lives coming and saying, God, what do you want to do? I got this crummy job. What do you want to do? I got this weird family. What do you want to do? I got this situation, this relationship. Lord, what do you want to do? What is your will? I think our prayer lives would change radically and we'd see more prayers answered. And so again, James now, now in the New American Standard. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I want to just narrow in for a second on that phrase that you may spend it on your pleasures. It doesn't mean that you're just asking God for money and now you're going to go and buy a ticket to Disneyland. It's not just the outlaying of resources for pleasure. The idea there is that pleasure now has dominion in your life. The idea is that pleasure is ruling and you're spending it as an exercise of the dominion of the pursuit of pleasure in your life. So again, it's God as the genie in the bottle. And instead of a pursuit of God ruling over us, it's a pursuit of self and self-gratification. Gratif- however you say that word. <laughs> Gratification, whatever. <laughs> and we see God as a means to our own ends. That's a four-year-old theology. That's how Daisy Love sees daddy. She'll grow out of it. It's developmentally normal. And if she could articulate differently, she'd say some different things. But generally, I love daddy. 
because he buys me things and takes me places. My mom used to, uh, well, I guess she used to mock me and my sister on occasion when we were younger. But she had this little sarcastic thing that she did. Be very careful with sarcasm if you have kids, especially young kids. They can't understand sarcasm and it could be very hurtful. It's hurtful to adults. Uh, but this was effective sarcasm in our lives. You know, we were just like any other kids. We wanted our mom to feed us, to buy us things, and to take us places. We were like any other kids. And when we got in that needy, egocentric, self-absorbed place, she would look at us and go, buy me, feed me, take me. Buy me, feed me, take me. Buy me, feed me, take me. And it bugged the cheese out of us. But it rattled us a little bit. And it got us to realize... Yeah, uh, that is kind of how we see you, Mom. I mean, <laughs> yeah, feed us and buy us and take us. That's totally how we see you. <laughs> but once we identified the problem then, we were helped in growing beyond that developmental stage. See, Daisy Love will get beyond seeing Daddy as just the one who gives her stuff. As Christians, will we get beyond seeing Daddy as just the one who lives to please us, because he doesn't. Actually, we live to please him. We were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Not only are we created for God's glory, we were predestined for God's glory. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We have a tendency to take the cross and make it all about us to make salvation all about us. He saved us and now we can live for us, but that's not the way it works. It is to the glory of God that he saves wretched sinners like me. We were created for his glory, predestined for his glory, and we are saved for his glory. Isaiah 43, verse 25, the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. So we are created for God's glory, predestined for God's glory. We're saved for God's glory. All that is left then is to live for God's glory. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. Living for Christ, for the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31 nails it just as hard. and says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So we need to begin to ask in our lives, God, how can I glorify you in all these little areas, in my little cubicle, 
in my being a boss, in my being an employee, as a minister, as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a mother, as a father, in this relationship, in this conflict, with these finances, with these resources, God, how can I glorify you? How can I begin to pray in such a way that I'm really praying your will be done? How can we move from four-year-old prayers to Garden of Gethsemane prayers? The four-year-old prayers is all about me and my wants. The Garden of Gethsemane prayer is about the Father and his will where Jesus prayed, nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. I believe the Lord would challenge us to move from four-year-old prayers to Garden of Gethsemane prayers. In Psalm 86, I want to end right there. We see the psalmist make this transition. He begins to pray a pretty normal prayer. And then he transitions into a sort of Garden of Gethsemane, glory to God sort of prayer. This might be a template of how we can transition in our own personal and corporate prayer lives. Now, he's got a tough situation ahead of him. It's a prayer of David, and David had a lot of tough things. So it's understandable the way that he's praying. But watch that he transitions. I'm much worse than this. I don't really have any real drama in my life. I'm not like, you know in China or, you know, in, in Sri Lanka or Indonesia. Nobody's trying to kill me for being a pastor. My kids are healthy. My wife is beautiful. I don't have any real problems. So my prayers are much worse than this. It's like, oh, you know, God, I, I really think I need another guitar. I mean, it just seems like it, you know, but <laughs> the psalmist here, he's got a real reason to be seeking the Lord. But, but even then, Watch how he transitions from a four-year-old prayer, so to speak, to a Gethsemane prayer. Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Do preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O thou, my God, save thy servant who trusts in thee. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to thee I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of thy servant, for to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon thee. Listen to me, Lord, give ear to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Not a bad prayer. Mine are much worse, but now he transitions into a great one. Look at this. Verse eight. There's no one like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous deeds. Thou alone art God. Teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart and will glorify thy name forever. See how he transitioned? Can can we start to transition in our personal and corporate prayer lives from just being need-driven, drama-driven, want-driven to glory-driven? 
The glory of God, his purposes among the nations. Notice that he's talking about his little situation. And then he moves to the glory of God among the nations. He says, God, all the nations will come to you and they're going to worship and they're going to bow down. And he begins to get a right perspective thinking about the nations glorifying God. He says, no one is like you. There's no other God like you. Unite my heart to fear you and not these circumstances. You see, I don't think that the four-year-old prayers are just going to go away. But I think there's room in life to transition, to mature. Daisy love will develop beyond the stage where she sees daddy is an end to her means. Will we develop beyond the stage where we see God is there to serve us and we start to serve him? Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this exhortation. Thank you for the truth that we exist for you and not you for us. And now we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd work the details of that out in our lives. Lord, I of all am a selfish man and self-absorbed in my own prayer life. But I'm saying before the congregation, I think with the congregation, that we want to move beyond that. Want to be absorbed with you, with your glory, your purposes and your mission. So help us, Lord. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and revive us according to thy word. To purify our hearts and our motives. To teach us to decrease that you would increase. Teach us your ways that we might know your will and pray according to your will and see powerful and effective prayer happening. Work these things in us, Lord, for your glory. Teach us to glorify you and enjoy you. Prayer team is up here. If you need help, they're mighty in prayer. They will be to your right this morning. Communion is here to remember the glory and the goodness and the cross of Christ. And you're welcome to come and get on your faces before the Lord.